This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to your radio doctor on this first Sunday after Labor Day. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Well, it's time to say goodbye to summer and get back to school and our regular routine. Today, we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Robert O'Reilly, Professor of Otolaryngology, that's ear, nose, and throat medicine, as well as head and neck surgery from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. His practice in ENT diseases also includes a focus on problems related to balance, which can result from problems in the inner ear. He's held leadership positions in national and international ear, nose, and throat societies, published multiple articles, books, recognized with teaching awards, research awards, and is a Philadelphia Magazine top doc. Today, we'll discuss the most common conditions that a pediatric ENT doctor sees in his or her office, such as otitis media or ear infections, when children should have tubes inserted to treat recurrent infections, treatment for babies who are tongue-tied, and the recent rise in RSV. Rob, welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Marianne. So, children and viruses, each year there's a cycle from fall through spring. Cold weather brings people inside, closer quarters, daycare, school, and we see the annual flu season and RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, in children. RSV, uh, the more I read, I mean, it's been in my own family. In the U.S., 57,000 hospitalizations a year, 500,000 emergency department visits. Tell us about that, and what's different this year? So this has been a very interesting year, as you know, for everybody. And um, typically we'll see these upper respiratory and lower respiratory infections during the cold, so-called cold and flu season when kids are cohorted together and viruses are more easily spread. But COVID has really put a twist on this because from the beginning of the shutdown, we've, we saw very little in the way of upper and lower respiratory infections. Not that we see lower respiratory infections necessarily in our office. And then, lo and behold, uh, late in the spring, when kids started to go back uh, to daycare and then be in the classroom and be together, we saw really an explosion of stuff that we typically see in the winter, including RSV, 
uh, upper respiratory infections, otitis media, gastroenteritis. I mean, talking to my primary care colleagues, it was as if we were back in the wintertime, which was very strange. Mm-hmm. And we talk about looking in the mirror at the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, because their seasons are opposite to ours. So our fall is their spring. What did we learn from Australia this year? Yeah, it was really a window into the future. You know, I recall following some stories in uh, 2020 uh, in the, you know, our summertime, summertime 2020, when it would be winter in Argentina, that they didn't have a flu season. And lo and behold, you know, when our winter came around, we didn't really see it. Now, what, what happened in our past winter, which was um, summer in Australia, they saw this same explosion of RSV and respiratory illnesses in kids. So we could see it coming down the pipeline. I think what's of interest is what happened there during our summertime. Like, I just don't know what's going to happen this winter. I don't think any of us do, but maybe we'll get some clues when we get more information about what they experienced. Sure. And you know what? I tip my hat to you for saying what you just did. So many people have opinions. I think that's causing a lot of upsetment through our country. As you said, we don't know. I mm-hmm. wish more people would say, this is what we know from the history of coronaviruses, RSV, but we don't know. And uh, the permutations keep coming. Plus, it seems as though, along with this um, surge here in our summer, it was infecting older children as well. In fact, yes, I got it a few weeks ago. I have not been that sick in years. I got it from my little darling two-year-old grandson from those daycare Boogies. I'm going to say it on the air <laughs> with love. Yeah. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing that it's in older children now because of the uh, surge? You know, um, the RSV patients typically are going to present to uh, the primary care folks because basically what it does, it causes lower respiratory tract symptoms, wheezing, you know, need for supplemental oxygen and so forth. And it was generally considered a big problem in infants and, and young children. Uh, but I think they're seeing a little bit more in the in the older age group mm-hmm. uh, at this point. The COVID cases, we don't see those acutely, but we, what we have seen occasionally are kids that are referred in because they lose their sense of smell. And everybody's familiar with that can be an early finding in this condition. Unfortunately, it can last a while, even upwards of months until, until it recovers. So occasionally we'll see those kids come in just to get an examination around their, mm-hmm. their sense of smell. But there is hope that it's pretty rare that the um, loss of smell is permanent yes it seems that way i mean we don't have the definitive data at this point but it seems to be in most people that is self-limited of course acutely it's just because you're congested Mm -hmm. and as most people know when you have a cold you don't your sense of smell is kind of diminished but this seems to be affecting the the the, actually the nerve of of uh, of smell so Mm -hmm. unfortunately that's a nerve that regenerates uh, in, in people. So there is a potential for recovery around that. Yeah. Well, that's good for people to hear because I can't imagine what it would be like for a little child to lose smell forever, probably on the dangerous side too. Um, so RSV, I I wanted to spend a minute on that because, um, unlike other viruses and, and you can explain it better than I, but some viruses give us bronchitis or the main, the big, um, airways, but the, the danger of RSV or respiratory syncytial virus is that it goes into the tiniest little sacs, the bronchioles, and that's why children are more at risk, as you say, for lower respiratory or pneumonia. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. And, you know, that's, that's kind of something that our 
pulmonary and our pediatric colleagues are really braced for every winter is they're going to have a, um, you know, a, a kind of an onslaught of kids who are requiring more intensive therapy and even hospitalization to get them through that. And now we're seeing it in the summer, which is really, um, really, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, how COVID has turned everything around. Everything, everything we could go to do is harder. So how do parents recognize RSV versus, because I would think once it sets in, it can gallop pretty quickly, yes? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the kind of common sense things are that the kids are going to have a productive cough. They're going to have wheezing. Um, they may even have, you know, shortness of breath. And those are things that are going to prompt uh, an immediate visit to their primary care or an emergency setting, depending on how quickly that advances. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be like the typical cold, you know, the runny nose and maybe a cough. It's going to be something that's going to, the kids are going to look sick. More dramatic, labored breathing. So, Rob, tell us, um, another fairly common issue with newborns is finding that a baby is tongue-tied. We have about a minute left. We could start talking about that. Can you explain what issues that causes and, and how you approach the treatment for that? Yeah, you know, the pediatricians, uh, the birthing center is going to check the newborns for a short frenulum or what we call a tongue-tie. So the most immediate manifestation is going to be that those babies are going to, if they're really significantly tongue-tied, are going to have trouble with breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And the typical symptoms, it's going to be painful to, for the mom to have the baby latch on. The baby's going to be, air is going to be escaping when they're feeding, so they'll be very gassy. And it'll take them a long, lot longer to feed. The trick is, you know, especially in a premature baby, you know, they're, they're, it's going to take them a day or two to be able to, for that feeding to become more efficient. Uh, but if they're if they're not able to get enough calories in, then those are patients that we're going to see acutely, even in the first week of life, uh, in the clinic uh, to evaluate that. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, the frenulum is that connector. When you look in the mirror and lift your tongue, there's a piece of tissue that connects your tongue to the floor of your mouth. Is that how you describe that, Rob? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's exactly. a little. Uh, bigger than you'd expect and the baby can't lift his or her tongue yeah well it, it, it proceeds to the front of the tongue the tip of the tongue then what happens is to efficiently breastfeed you have to oppose or push your tongue up against your hard palate and if the tip of the tongue is tethered you can manage it kind of hinges there mm-hmm. and they're not able to get a good latch and defeat so it's stuck to the floor let's take a little break and we'll be right back with dr rob o'reilly from children's hospital philadelphia Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and our guest today is Dr. Rob O'Reilly from Children's Hospital. Rob, we're talking about babies that are found to be tongue-tied, or the connective tissue has their tongue too close to the floor and not able to lift and, and breastfeed properly. How do you treat that when that happens? So the first thing is to assess it you know, clinically, and the, the, there's several different ways to do this. In fact, parents can do this at home. I like to put on a gloved uh, hand and take my finger and feel under the tongue. And when the tongue is really tethered, what, what we'll feel is that it's almost like a guitar string. And um, if the baby cries, the tongue will often not lift above the, the gu- lower gums. So if that's the case, then what we can do, it's a very simple um, little procedure where we um, uh, typically you, you can numb that area up either topically or with a little injection. And we have a retractor that pulls the tongue up. And basically what we do is we just snip it with scissors. 
mm-hmm. then hold a little bit mm-hmm. of pressure on there. It, it did typically very minimal bleeding uh, from that area. Of course, the babies are kind of angry because they think something good is coming, and instead they get a little clip there. Uh, yeah, it can be kind of sad. And, and then we um, we return them to the to the parents, and then we have the mother um, breastfeed in the clinic to make sure things are going well. And usually, there's an immediate uh, benefit, and um, those are some very happy families uh, when we do Aww. that. Well, I can imagine that, especially if it's parents, uh, new parents, and it's their first baby, it's a little scary to think there's going to be a little cut or something in such a sensitive area. But that it's mucosa, it's that shiny surface for our listeners that heals very quickly. So you, as you say, do a little cut, or I know sometimes you do a little laser treatment, takes care of it, and then the baby's happier and mom's happier and and all's well. Otitis media. Otitis media or middle ear infection. Let's talk about that. I know it's usually an infection in childhood, and but it's the most common pediatric infection that requires antibiotics. So am I right about that? Tell us a little bit about yeah. middle ear infections. So otitis media is a hugely important topic. It's it's the most common infection globally uh, in ter- involving the ears, and it really is just in terms of health economics. It's a huge a huge issue. So. It, young kids are very susceptible to otitis media as opposed to older kids and adults because of two reasons. One is their anatomy is different. So there's a little passageway that goes from the middle ear through the base of the skull, and it opens in the back of the nose. It's called the eustachian tube. And in the resting state, it's closed, but it has to open about two to three times an hour, depending on the changes in atmospheric pressure, to equalize the pressure in your middle ear. In, in babies and young children, it's very short. And it's angled differently. So the muscle that opens it, which is activated when you swallow or you yawn, is not very efficient. So at its baseline, it's not, it's not going to be what it is when your, head is, your skull is fully grown. The second issue is kids, younger kids are more susceptible to upper respiratory infections because their immune system, as you can imagine, is naive. And so any upper respiratory infection that involves the back of the nose, which, which a lot of cold viruses, et cetera, do, can cause some swelling. So you add the swelling to the baseline kind of inefficiency of the eustachian tube. And what happens is the eustachian tube won't open anymore. And then the response mm-hmm. in the middle ear, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So the lining of the middle ear is like the lining of your mouth. So it's able to secrete fluid into the middle ear to get rid of the vacuum. And because the eustachian tube is short, bacteria in the nose have a very easy time getting into the middle ear and causing those acute infections. And I remember we had a good conversation the other day that the lining inside the ear, the nasopharynx, which is the back of the throat, the back of the nose that connect, they're all the same respiratory mucosa. So it's just one big circular highway. And naturally, if a little guy is rubbing his nose and, and we'll talk about pink eye too, mm-hmm. so might as well throw that in there, even though that's not part of ear, nose, and throat, but children sniffle or they touch their nose and then they touch their eyes and it's viral adenovirus that causes pink eye and yeah. touching nose and throat and other children and toys and all those good cooties that are shared. But <laughs> um, I guess that's why it's more common. You, uh, you know, you, you explain something really well. And maybe that's why COVID, so we thought, is a little less frequently found in children because they're na- their naive immune system and they're not, they don't have the receptors where the uh, virus can land. Let's hope that keeps them safer this year with this uh, Delta and Mu. Yeah. So what would you say are the biggest risk factors for the ear infections? Well, you know, daycare obviously is an issue um, because, you know, in, back in the old days, I got enough gray hair 
the first time you really got sick, unless you're in a huge family, was when you went to school and your eustachian tube would have matured a bit more. Maybe your, your immune system would have been a little less naive. Now, you know, younger kids, eight months of age, etc., are together. They're swapping viruses because it's almost impossible to prevent that. And so that's, that's really what puts them at risk. Other risk factors are, you know, smoke in the environment, so in the household, etc. Fortunately, that's less of a problem now. There's been some linkage to using the pacifier and as well as bottle feeding at night. It's hard to say physiologically why that's the case. But really, the number one cause is... Um, upper respiratory infections driving this. And, you know, it's fascinating because experimentally, as we talked the other day, over the years, we've tried to recreate this situation where you would you would do an experiment on an animal to infect them with a cold virus so you could reproduce the middle ear infections. Well, COVID was a, the biggest natural history study that I think we could have done because what we experienced was all these kids with ear infections, when basically the world shut down, you know, they all, they all got better almost universally. And so we had many, many kids that were, were ready and prepared for ear tubes because of the recurrent ear infections. And all of a sudden it cleared up because they were isolated uh, from one another for such a long period of time. But it looks like we're back in the groove where, uh, unfortunately, these ear infections are starting to crop back up again. So I know that it's a little bit in the weeds for our listeners, but there are there are two fairly common bacteria that cause ear infections. One is strep pneumonia, mm-hmm. and the other one is H influenza. Am I right? So yeah. when the pneumococcal vaccine came along for infants in 2000, and then the uh, the broader coverage came in 2010, that seemed to help decreased numbers of uh, ear infections, yes? Definitely. I mean, the problem with pneumococcus, as you know, is there's so many different serotypes that if you look at some of the studies, other serotypes that we don't routinely immunize for seem to take over the lead. But there's no doubt uh, that those vaccinations have helped cut down on those types of infections. Mm -hmm. So walk us through a typical journey to an ear infection usually starts with an upper respiratory infection and and what goes on after that yeah so the 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 typical scenario is the child will get basically a you know quote cold and have congestion and so forth and then in the really young kids who can't tell you um, that they have ear pain they'll often be irritable at night particularly when they lay flat because you can imagine the venous congestion in your head when you're flat and if you have that pressure feeling imagine that you're landing in an airplane that kind of uncomfortable feeling that you have. That's what the babies would have. And that's, you know, uh, magnified when they're laying flat. So usually there's a very poor sleep pattern. They're irritable. And then, of course, the fever is one of the giveaway signs. Um, tugging at mm-hmm. the ears is not such a great, reliable sign because there are many different things that you can feel in your ear that are referred to the ear. We call that referred otalgia. And even when kids are teething, when their upper teeth are coming in, they're going to feel that in their middle ear. So just tugging at the ear isn't um, a necessarily reliable sign that they have a middle ear problem. So you really, that's when you have to have the, the uh, ear examination by your, by your pediatricians or your family doctor. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, we have three children, and I never ordered an antibiotic for any of them. Whenever they had an ache or a pain or a fever, I went to the pediatrician because I didn't want to feel that I overcalled or undercalled something. But through the years, when patients would call me with GI diverticulitis or something that would require antibiotics, 
I would say I have to put, I have to open the hood and look in, into the motor. I can't, I want to put my hands on your belly because I don't want to order an antibiotic and, and say, oh, you've had diverticulitis again. What do you tell parents to call and say, I know you're not primary care, but can you just shoot another antibiotic to the pharmacy? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us are much more comfortable to, you know, not to prescribe on the phone. We really want to, we want to see that. And of course, we also want to limit the amount of times that we're giving antibiotics, particularly to young children, because uh, quite frankly, we are treating an infection, but it's not very healthy to be recurrently on antibiotics because it can destroy your, what we call your microbiome, which are the so-called good bacteria in your gut each time you take it. And just ask, you know, parents who have kids on this Frequently, what, what that diarrhea can be like, it can, and the diaper rations over, it can be pretty, um, you know, pretty disabling. So, so we really want sure. to limit mm-hmm. the as good stewards of prescribing the antibiotics. We want to be sure that that's that's indicated. So, the ex, I think the examination is crucial to make that decision. Mm-hmm. As, for some little children that um, have recurrent ear infections, do you ever use antibiotics in a prophylactic way in a small group? Uh, and we'll talk in the next segment when you choose between medical therapy and watching the child and being separated, uh, like you said, with COVID, or yeah. when you would jump to surgery. I guess that's a whole... Yeah, so we can talk, uh, I guess, in the next segment a little bit about the, the surgical indications, but prophylactic antibiotics, as far as I'm concerned, are a no-no. And I think that's been borne out by multiple studies. Prophylactic antibiotics are not useful. Uh, the low-dose antibiotics, unless it's a very specific circumstance, are going to create resistant organisms. So you want to treat at the adequate higher dose acutely for the ear infections and then get off of it. So I, I, I never mm-hmm. recommend prophylactic antibiotics for, for recurrent ear infections. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people need to hear, that you don't want your child's body to say, I've seen this uh, med before. I'm not impressed. Yeah. I'm going to grow a bug that's outsmarting the, the medication. And, you know, we worry about other side effects. If you don't take your child to be checked, like a perforated eardrum uh, or even mastoiditis certainly is a thing in the past where the back of the uh, head into the neck gets infected. That's probably not ever seen in the u.s anymore maybe third world countries where those poor people don't have access to care but that's really a thing of the past yes well unfortunately we we still do see cases of acute mastoiditis that require surgical treatment and hospitalization i mean it's not as common in the post-antibiotic area but you still see it if you have a very you know vicious form Mm -hmm. say of strep pneumo um you can get a you can get a, a acute mastoiditis with complications so the giveaway signs would be swelling behind the ear. The kids look really sick, very high fevers. They look, mm. you know, what we call toxic. Those kids need to be seen urgently and evaluated, often with, you know, a CAT scan to, to look inside and see if there is this erosive process. Mm-hmm. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back to hear more about middle ear infections. We're back on your radio doctor with Dr. Rob O'Reilly from Children's Hospital. Rob, we were talking about the distinction that you have to make, the surgical indications. When do you say, okay, we've managed this recurrent ear infection with 
different antibiotics or maybe the same antibiotic, it's time to operate. How do you decide that? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, A general rule of thumb would be if the child has three ear infections in a three-month period or four ear infections in a six-month period, then we're going to start to consider tubes as an option to recurrent use of antibiotics. And those numbers come from studies indicating that if you have that many, you're likely to stay in that same kind of pattern for the next calendar year or so. So that that's where the discussion begins. Other things that would push us towards tubes would be the severity of the ear infections. Are they really hard to treat? In other words, are they on multiple antibiotics just to get rid of one acute infection? Um, are they maintaining fluid in between ear infections, particularly if it's tenacious fluid? It can almost get like epoxy in there and cause a conductive hearing loss. So a hearing loss because the eardrums can't vibrate properly. In those instances, then we know that those kids are not hearing properly and we're worried about there being a speech or a language delay. So that would be another mm-hmm. another indication where we're going to lean more towards it. Um, in the past, um, the time of the year would give us an indication. So if we're getting like this time of year, typically if the children have had enough infections to qualify for tubes, we're going to lean more towards maybe recommending tubes as opposed to, let's say, in a typical year when it's May summer's coming, upper respiratory infections are going to hopefully dwindle, then we might drag our feet and say, okay, let's, you know, let's wait until June, July. If we're still seeing this pattern, then maybe we'll intervene. I don't know what to tell our listeners now with COVID. I, I just don't know if this is how long this is going to be the situation, but that would be the, the traditional uh, thinking in terms of evaluating the tubes. Yeah. And if children have recurrent ear infections, as you say, they can have, um, difficulty they can have hearing loss even if it's temporary and of course that's going to affect their speech how about balance or motor problems i know that's more inner ear do you ever see issues with balance i know that's a focus of your practice that you see uh children with balance Mm -hmm. this is a really fascinating question for me because i've always you know we know there's critical periods in language development in terms of hearing and and particularly in kids who are born deaf and so forth, which is a separate conversation. But we know that there are, there are periods that are, are, that are critical for that development. The question, is there a critical vestibular or balance period in terms of your gross motor skills? And we do have patients come in, you know, not universally, but sometimes the parents will come in and they will say, I know my child has middle ear fluid or infection because they look like a drunken sailor. They're staggering around and they have very poor balance. And frequently when we place the tubes within a week or two, that imbalance is completely gone. The bigger question that's harder to answer, and we'd have to prepare some some studies around this, and and we've been working on this, is, you know, is there a time where we would really, this would be another indication for tubes is, okay, they've had balance problems. Is there a metric that we, we can look at their balance and say, okay, well, this, this could have some long-term ramifications. So it's still, unfortunately, a bit of an open-ended question, but one that we're thinking about. So that's interesting that you mentioned that a, a parent or a caregiver would say, you know, that their balance is off because I remember one of our med school test questions in pediatrics was, uh, <laughs> the answer was diarrhea, that a child with a middle ear infection might not be tugging, might not be fussy, and fever is only about two out of three, right? You don't always have a fever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they present with just diarrhea. It's, it's fascinating. Any mm-hmm. comments on that? Yeah, I mean, the ear infections can have, um, you know, a myriad of, of, of different issues that the kids can present with. Um, I'm not familiar with diarrhea as an issue. 
unless the kids were on antibiotics, but I assume that's one that could be uh, could be part and parcel of it. Often, you know, what we see is the kids will have a persistent cough and a heavy post-nasal drip, and they just, you know, they just seem to be sicker longer when they have that middle ear component because, as we talked about, all that is kind of connected anatomically. And usually when we remove that fluid, when we place tubes, the kids are still going to get sick. They're still going to get viral illnesses, but the general experience is they're not as sick as long. And that's one mm-hmm. of the one of the benefits that I talk about. I also talk about the health benefits of not taking antibiotics recurrently, uh, you know, for the ear infections. To me, that's one of the big bonuses of the ear tubes is you don't, if you had an ear infection with tubes, you're going to have drainage right out of the tube and you can treat. That's what I wanted to hear you say. Yeah. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. can treat, you can treat that effectively with topical antibiotic drops. You do not need an almost, well, rarely do you need to have oral antibiotics to get rid of that. So that's one Mm -hmm. of the, one of the big benefits in, in my eyes to having the tubes and when there is that pattern of ear infections. Yeah. So a couple questions that I wanted listeners uh, to understand. Um, number one, advice about pediatric anesthesia that you either you want to either go to a center that has pediatric anesthesiology uh, providers or, as you say, an adult anesthesiologist or a certified uh, uh, nurse anesthetist providing anesthesia that has good good experience with children, number one, and maybe you could walk us through the process of tubes, time in hospital. What should parents expect? They're the two things I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, I think um, obviously you want to have an uh, anesthesiologist who has skill and familiarity with children. They're, it's not always you know, uh, practical, depending on where you live, that you're going to have a specialized center with pediatric anesthesiologists, but usually there's several people in the group of anesthesiologists who are comfortable taking care of kids. The anesthesia that's given for kids, and again, this is not in my purview, but obviously I'm there when it happens, is we'll, when the, the day of the procedure, when the parents arrive, depending on the age of the child, we'll give the, the child a fast-acting sedative um, that they, they'll take by mouth, and that will kind of calm them down so they're not upset when they leave the parents go back to the operating room. In the operating room, the anesthesiologist will deliver, typically it's what's called sevoflurane, which is inhaled anesthetic. And in the younger kids, they take a few breaths of that and they're asleep. If the children have a lot of, you know, kind of post-nasal drip, they're very congested, sometimes they'll start a little intravenous when they're asleep in case they had to give any other medications. And then once they're fully asleep, we place the tubes. The tubes generally take five minutes or less to place. We'll suction out the fluid, make a little incision in the eardrum, and then we'll place drops in the ears while the child's asleep. And then the anesthesiologist turn off the agent, the children wake up, and we return them to their parents. And then postoperatively, typically, you know, we we have them watch the kids uh, that day, but they're back to uh, normal activity almost always the next day. and there's just some some drops that the parents have to use for a few days and then we do obviously we do a follow-up about four to six weeks later check the tubes we do a hearing screen and then we're going to check the children every six months uh, until the tubes are extruded and everything's resolved so the tubes just leave themselves you don't have to take them out right occasionally we have to remove them but what's happening is the surface cells of the eardrum are mobilizing across the surface of the eardrum and there's a little flange on the outside of the tube and it will gradually push it out of the eardrum and then it'll fall into the ear canal and either we'll retrieve it or it'll come out with the wax and then the eardrum heals up behind that. 
Mm-hmm. So that takes a little of the fear out, and maybe kids actually think that's kind of cool that they are, you know, <laughs> like robots or they're aliens or something from another planet. <laughs> so, um, so once tubes are removed, and this is probably not even a question you can answer, what percent recur? So, if a child's had one set of tubes, up the the general rule is about one in five kids will start to have enough infections that they'll need a second set of tubes, mm-hmm. um, and then. You know, occasionally the adenoids can be a problem uh, if this is a long-acting thing and they're going for a second or a third or a fourth set of tubes, which is actually quite rare. Then we might talk about other interventions to try and stop that cycle. Uh, But only about 20% of kids are going to end up with a second set of tubes. Good to know. This is such helpful information because it's a scary proposition to Mm -hmm. say we need to, uh, you know, sedate your child and they're going to have surgery. And and it's not that it's... um, that we're cavalier about these things, but when you do it all the time, you, you, you're comfortable knowing you can get a child to it safely. Let's take a little break, and then we'll be back for our final session with Dr. Robert Riley. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA, 1-888-RECOVERY. And we're in our final segment with Dr. Rob O'Reilly. Rob, does acid reflux have any interplay with ear, nose, and throat symptoms? You know, this is a this is really something that I think is our knowledge is in evolution. We know that that kids, just like adults, they can have reflux, and they can have what's called extraesophageal reflux. So it can get to the bottom of their throat. It can get to their voice box. It potentially can get even up into the back of their nose, and We've been trying to answer this question of association between reflux and otitis media for years. In fact, I've published several different studies over the years with collaborators about this. We found that kids under a year of age, um, a high percentage of them had gastric, what's called pepsin, which is an enzyme that's only found in the, in the stomach, pepsin A, that was we could isolate from their middle ear. The tricky thing is just because it's there doesn't mean it's causing the problem. Now, mm-hmm. you know, reason would dictate it's probably not a great thing to have gastric contents, including lipase and other enzymes that are produced in your stomach, sitting in your upper airway. And so um, it's something that we certainly think about, particularly I think about it in the scenario where a child has, let's say, has ear tubes and has sterile mucusy drainage that doesn't culture out anything and is resistant to drops and we've taken out their adenoids and they still have the problem. That's something that I'm going to think about and I'm going to send to my gastroenterology colleagues to entertain that as a possibility. Um, and that's why it comes to my mind because we mm-hmm. see so much. We exchange and share patients with our ENT docs at Jeff at the, in adults. Real quickly, mm-hmm. any long-term consequences of ear infections that you wanted to mention yeah, so, before we finish there? You know, fortunately, most kids with recurrent ear infections, they're going to come out on the other side without any problem. There is some data that uh, in some kids, they can get scar tissue in the middle ear um, at what we call adhesions, and that can affect their hearing because the little mm-hmm. bones of hearing are affected. Sometimes if their ears rupture from the infections, the perforation will close. Fortunately, that's not a, a huge problem. So by and large, I tell parents not to lose sleep about ear infections in terms of long-term ramifications for their ear health. But unfortunately, there are a small percentage that you know, we're going to have to follow and sort that out if it is a problem. And when you think you're doing a good thing by cleaning your child's ears out, you're going to not put anything 
smaller than your elbow in there, right? <laughs> Q-tips are probably yes. not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So if a, lis- if a listener wanted to make an appointment and bring their child to see you, what number would they call, Rob? So the best would be, uh, the main number is 1-800-TRY-CHOP, T-R-Y-C-H-O-P. And that puts you in the, the main number, and then you just ask for ENT. And um, then they can connect the families with our our department, our division, that is, and then we can sort out, depending on their problem, who is the best provider to see that. And uh, we can usually get patients in very, very quickly to start that process. And you have so many offices, which is wonderful. You're in Langhorne, and um, where else are you seeing patients? So I see patients in Exton, Glen Mills, Lancaster, and Philadelphia, but we also see patients in Chalfont. We see them in Voorhees. We see them in Princeton. We see them down at the Jersey Shore. So we have, uh, you know, we have a lot of sites to accommodate the families. And if people want to read more about ear infections, RSV, and all those good, your website, the CHOP website, is so well done, easy to navigate. It's chop.edu. That's Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, chop.edu. Rob O'Reilly, thank you so much. You're the best. <laughs> it was so wonderful to reconnect with you. We're yeah. old friends, and I think people learned great information. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Good to see you, Marianne. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Surf's Up. When people talk about first responders, we think healthcare workers, police officers, firefighters. What about lifeguards? The Red Cross reported a shortage of lifeguards this year. And with COVID keeping people closer to home, the Jersey Shore became even more crowded. Recently, I caught up with a man who keeps a watchful eye on our beach. Mike Servi, 20 years on the Ocean City Beach Patrol. Seeing Mike each Memorial Day weekend makes us all feel safer. Think about the role of a lifeguard on the beach. The ocean is a mighty force. Last month, Cape May mourned the loss of a 16-year-old guard who died on a routine row when a wave flipped his boat and knocked him unconscious. Guards, first responders when a swimmer dives into shallow water and needs to move the patient with a spinal cord injury without causing more damage. Imagine the strength and calm it takes to save a flailing swimmer in panic, especially if he's bigger than you. And how about the daredevil who ignores the red flags, enters the pounding surf anyway, putting the guards' lives at risk too. Tryouts for the beach patrol, not for the faint of heart. A timed one-mile swim in the freezing cold June water. A half-mile timed run with the same tired legs. Then a timed row and a timed rescue. Guards definitely have my respect. Baywatch fans, I bet David Hasselhoff and Pamela Anderson couldn't do that. Ocean City Beach Patrol, founded in 1898, has a perfect record. In 123 years, they've never had a drowning on a beach with lifeguards. Eight miles of coastline, three million visitors each summer. Mike Servey was made for this job. His mom was a college swimmer. By age five, he was practicing with the swim team in the same pool where mom did her daily laps on the other side. His dad was his hero, taught high school history, coached wrestling, and instilled the values of discipline and structure. Mike still hears the echo of his dad's words, surveys do the right thing. Adversity would also shape the man he is today. By the age of eight, Mike suffered the pain of his parents' separation, splitting time between dad with a new family and mom, a nurse who adopted one of her patients, an African-American child who was one pound at birth and had his leg amputated as an infant. With his single mother at work, 14-year-old Mike provided a lot of childcare. 
He grew to love and protect his little brother, Shakri, helped him learn to swim, and though limited in growth, Shakri did the grueling one-mile master swim at age 16 with Mike by his side. Mike believes in angels and has met a few along the way. By age 20, he was on his own. In the summer, he worked as a guard by day and stocked shelves in a liquor store at night to pay for college. It was a family on the beach who shared their home with him for two summers. Another beach friend became his grandfather and made Mike part of his family for many years. The other angel is his wife, Kelly, who was on his swim team at Rowan University. They're both devoted to teaching special education. Mike spent seven years teaching second and fourth grade boys with emotional and behavioral disabilities. He gave them structure and routine and taught them that every day provides a new opportunity to improve their behavior. For the last 10 years, he's taught children with highly functioning autism. Mike is a good listener with a soft-spoken approach, the perfect formula for sensitive children. Working with these special children takes him back to his own childhood. Quote, I get to teach them the way I learn to deal with things I'm sensitive to. Mike's very empathetic and proudly wears his t-shirt on bubble day with the words, just be you. 30 rescues as a rookie and many since, but Mike said the most dramatic rescue occurred last week. A little boy lost and wandering, Mike and his partner radioed the patrol and located his distraught parents seven blocks away. When the dad came running to the stand, he fell to his knees in tears at the sight of his five-year-old cherub. As the loving dad of his own little boys, Mike could only imagine the gratitude that flooded the dad's heart, and that made his day. We salute you, Mike Servi, a man for all seasons. Thanks for listening, and visit our website, yourradiodoctor.com, to hear about champions and shows again. Keep it here for the really romantic, relaxing sounds of Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor, always reminding you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.